0: So would you draw us close to yourself this morning, speak to us in a way that changes us, that confronts us with our own weakness, with our own sinfulness, and draws us in to bring healing and help and grace and forgiveness where it's needed. So thank you for this time. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Why has God chosen to tell us about creation in Genesis 1? In a couple of weeks, we're going to consider what the rest of the Bible has to say about creation. Most of the other passages that talk about God's creating the world are poetic texts. Why did He provide an account uh, that certainly appears to be straightforward historical narrative in Genesis 1? Why did He give this text to the people of Israel As they wandered in the wilderness before entering the promised land. Why did the Spirit of God guide Moses to describe God's acts of creation in such a matter of fact, straightforward way? I've thought about other ways he could have communicated the lessons he might have intended to teach. For example, he could have shown Moses a vision depicting what happened in symbolic terms, similar to how he gave John a vision of God's execution of the judgment of the wicked, depicted in the symbols of breaking seals, blowing trumpets, and pouring out bowls. In the book of Revelation, we read John describing what he saw in his vision. In Genesis, we get none of that. Moses, the human narrator, doesn't say, and then I saw God create heaven and earth. He doesn't say, and I heard God say, let there be light. Moses simply narrates that God did it and God said it. Moses doesn't claim to have been an eyewitness or to record eyewitness testimony. He simply seems to be recording descriptive summaries of events in a relatively straightforward chronological sequence. Or another way I imagine God could have communicated is through a first-person direct narrative. Instead of, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, he could have guided Moses to write, Thus says the Lord, in the beginning, I created heaven and earth. Or the Lord could have even written the account himself with his finger, as he did on the tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. There have been many attempts to read Genesis 1 as a record of God communicating in some fashion other than straightforward historical narrative. Some have suggested a form of accommodation, whereby God simply accommodated his explanation of his creative acts in order to communicate certain truths about himself without intending to communicate what actually happened. Certainly, we do learn a lot lot about God in Genesis 1, but... If he was interested in communicating only abstract truths about his power or his character, it seems like he's included a lot of unnecessary information, information that could easily distract readers from looking directly at him. And certainly, his creative acts are described in terms that the Israelites could readily understand. He does not seem to describe things in this chapter that could only be understood through scientific exploration using advanced technology thousands of years later. Of course, the most hotly debated question remains, if we read this as a straightforward historical narrative, how should the conclusions we draw from the text influence our pursuit of scientific exploration of created reality? Or is it possible... That our modern scientific sophistication actually overcomplicates matters by its overconfidence in dismissing or ignoring the testimony of Scripture as valid historical data. Moreover, if God's Spirit has accommodated the description to the Israelites' frame of reference, does that mean that we should expect Him to be describing the process of creation in terms that simply echo or mirror the surrounding culture's understandings of the world. As certain clear parallels with other ancient cultures' stories about the origin of the world are recognizable, must we assume that Genesis works the same way and communicates the same ideas with perhaps some slight tweaks to correct polytheistic or idolatrous ideas? Or should we consider the accommodation to go further? To reflect the genre of the account itself, so that Genesis 1 should be recognized as an example of mytho-history or worldview story. Things like Homer's Iliad or Homer's Odyssey. In such literature, the point is not to actually narrate events that happened long ago, but to either explain ideological reasons why things are the way they are today, or to shape readers' view of the world, including the theological and ethical perspective the author intends for them to embody. However, the proposed similarities between Genesis and other ancient cultures' stories about the origin of the world are often overemphasized, without a proper recognition of their stark differences in both literary style and content. Ironically, It could be said that modern scientific theories that dismiss or ignore the Bible's teaching have greater similarities of content with ancient culture stories about the origin of the world than the account of Genesis does. And the literary style of other ancient culture stories about the origin of the world is vastly different than what we have in Genesis, usually laid out in clear, poetic, or even lyrical form. The book of Genesis contains a few poetic sections even a couple of poetic paragraphs in chapters 1 and 2. But the whole is clearly written in straightforward historical narrative form. This suggests that the content of chapter 1 is intending to portray historical details of historical facts in the form of historical narrative. This takes us back to our initial question. Why? Why did God begin the Bible with this historical account creation. As we've suggested over the past few weeks, God's Spirit guided Moses to write down the whole book of Genesis as part of the Pentateuch for the people of Israel in the wilderness to teach them about who their God is, who they are as a people, and what they can expect in the future. But why start at the very beginning? Why not just start with the Lord's appearance to the pagan named Abram? As has often been observed, the account of creation and fall in chapters 1 to 3 provide foundational instruction about the way human history and culture has taken shape. The creation account, in particular, of chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, gives initial shape to the purpose and goal of humanity in God's created world. As I read it, the account points to that purpose and goal by telling us readers how God created all that exists, placing humanity in its proper created context. However, above and beyond all of that, as the main character is God himself, the account is given surely to motivate and shape our worship. Moses draws out a warning against false worship in Deuteronomy four fifteen to 19, and specifies things God created on days 4 to 6 of creation. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, over the first three days of creation, God made several separations as He prepared a place for His people. Now, in days four to six, we're going to see him filling this place and delegating his authority, his ruling authority, in certain ways. Genesis 1 obviously indicates that he is the only one worthy of worship. Everything is accountable to him. Everything is under his rule and jurisdiction. He defines what is good, and he delegates authority and defines realms of responsibility as he sees fit. Nothing in all creation deserves human worship. It is true that day six is the climax of the creation narrative, particularly in the creation of humanity. But as glorious as humanity is, humanity is created to worship, not to be worshipped. The how of creation is set forth to amaze us, to move us to worship. For me, it's hard to be moved to worship if the how ...that is recorded in what appears to be straightforward historical narrative actually didn't happen. If I have to ignore the details, or if the details are simply given to stimulate my imagination... ...but what they depict doesn't reflect reality in actual events... ...then I struggle to see what exactly this teaches me about God. And I begin to wonder whether other straightforward historical narratives Moses recorded... ...such as the choice of Abram or the exodus from Egypt aren't also mythologically shaped... But if this is straightforward historical narrative, if Genesis 1 really does communicate how God created heaven and earth, including the sky, extending out to the galaxies and land and sea and all their inhabitants in the space of six days, as the text describes, then, wow! Nothing compares to this God. Nothing the ancient cultures made up compares to this God. No one and nothing else deserves my worship, my devotion, and my absolute allegiance. This morning, we'll focus on days four to six. On day four, God creates the familiar light sources. Look at Genesis 1, 14 to 19 with me. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, On day one, God created light, which I suggested was the emanation of light from himself for a period of time that he then named day. Following that period, evening came in which his divine light waned, and then the period of darkness resumed, which he named night. Finally, the darkness gave way to God's shining of his light again to transition to the second day. Now, on the fourth day, instead of saying, let there be light, as he did on day one, God now says, let there be lights. The Hebrew word is different from the word used on day one. This word could be translated as light source or light bearer. When we track the way Moses uses this word in his other books, we find our first hint of a connection between creation and the tabernacle. If the Spirit of God guided Moses to write down this account of creation during the Israelites' period of wandering in the wilderness, as I believe he did, then when he used this Hebrew word, the original readers would have immediately thought of the lamps in the tabernacle. The word specifies each individual source of light on the seven-branched lampstand, or the menorah, that was positioned outside of the Holy of Holies, across from the table of the Bread of the Presence. If we consider the invisible realm where God lives as the highest heaven, that would correspond to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Then the holy place right outside the curtain that enclosed the Holy of Holies might represent the visible sky where we see the light bearers created on day four, sun, moon, and stars. As we'll see in a moment, God intends these light bearers to govern the progress and measurement of time for people. The priests were supposed to keep these lights in the tabernacle burning perpetually as long as the tabernacle was stationary. And this probably served to remind the people of God's perpetual light, that he is ultimately the source of the light that the heavenly light bearers are bearing to the earth. When God speaks on day four, he specifically decrees that these light bearers must appear in the expanse, which we discussed in our last sermon. The sky where God had previously drawn up some of the waters in the form of clouds now expands at God's decree so that it might contain these light bearers. Their God-ordained purpose is to separate the day from the night, which God himself did for the first three days of creation. Now we see him delegating that authority to these light bearers. Specifically, he says that the light bearers will be used to measure days and years. He also says that they'll be for signs and for seasons. That they'll be used for signs suggests that God may, at times, choose to use them as a form of communication. Mostly, in Scripture, we see this reflected as God announces his judgment oftentimes with accompanying eclipses. And famously, a star was utilized to announce the birth of Jesus. The word translated seasons is probably not intended to refer to fall, spring, winter, and summer, though those seasons are measured and marked in connection with the moon in particular. But in the Old Testament, this word consistently refers to appointed times or festivals. Thus, some of the festivals of Israel were harvest festivals, which would correspond roughly to the change of seasons as we typically define them. But God defines the festivals for his people by scheduling them on certain days of certain months, which the people would count in accordance with the perceived position of the moon. In addition to the separation of day from night and the measuring of longer stretches of time and scheduling holidays, verse 15 says that their purpose is to give light upon the earth. At the end of verse 15, we get the simple statement, and it was so, indicating that what God said should happen then happened. But then verses 16 to 18 give further elaboration. Without providing any kind of scientific mechanism or even a description of what this might have looked like, Moses simply writes, and God made, using that Hebrew word "asa," which we discussed a bit in the last sermon. According to his to this statement, God manufactured or produced sun, moon, and stars, all the heavenly bodies we see in the sky during the day and the night with our eyeballs and through telescopes. He said they should be there in the expanse, and so he made them. And then verse 17 says he put them there in the expanse. Notice the purposes are given in reverse order when he summarizes what he did. God set them there to give light upon the earth, to rule over day and night, and to separate the light from the darkness. Curiously, Moses does not refer to these light bearers as the sun and the moon. Whereas on the previous three days, God named certain things he had created, on day four, he is not said to assign names to what he made. In verse 16, Moses refers to these light bearers as the two great lights and the stars. The two great lights, then, he further describes as a greater light bearer and a lesser or smaller light bearer. While sun, moon, and stars were deified throughout the ancient world, Israel will have none of that. God alone is to be worshipped. However, Moses does personify these created light bearers. Moses says that God made the greater light, which is surely the sun, to rule the day. And he made the lesser light, which is the moon, to rule the night. Thus, sun and moon are personified as rulers. The sun governs the day by shining light on it. And the moon governs the night by shining a lesser light during the night. Thus, God utilizes the nighttime light bearer to ensure that the people of earth will never be in total darkness. Thus, the darkness over the depths that was the condition of earth as it was initially created, according to verse 2, has been remedied by day 4. Moses mentions, almost as an afterthought, that God made the stars at the end of verse 16. Ancient people were just as obsessed with the stars as modern people can be, even without telescopes and the modern understanding of their composition and how far away they are from our planet and how big they are. Both astronomy and astrology are ancient human pursuits. Here, Moses relativizes the stars considerably. The stars are not angelic, personal beings. They are not to be worshipped. And even in spite of the stars being perhaps included as being given by God for signs, humans are not to be looking for patterns in their movements that determine events in history or in our personal lives. In other words, one of the implications of Moses' reminder that God made the stars without defining a clear purpose for them in relation to human life is that horoscopes are garbage and God's people have no business consulting them. Likewise, all forms of astrology considered as attempts to predict future events based on various interstellar movements or changes are off-limits for God's people. The rule of the heavenly bodies is mere personification that clearly and simply refers to the patterns of movement that enable people to measure the progress of time, period. That is God's purpose for them in relation to human life. Day four concludes with an assessment of these light bearers as good and the repeated refrain of, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So, according to scripture, God made the sun of this galaxy, the moon related to this planet and all the stars, which I take to include every other heavenly body in the universe, all at once by speaking on the fourth day of creation, after God created this planet, earth. And after God set this planet up with clouds, seas, land, and various plant life, that sequence does not in any way square with typical evolutionary scientific theory or any scientific theory of origins that relates to the Big Bang, even ignoring the much longer time periods involved in such theories. So the question on the table becomes, does material evidence necessitate the conventional scientific sequence? Or do assumptions have something to do with, the shaping, with shaping the direction of the conclusions? Isn't it a fair scientific methodology, with regard to origin science in particular, to suggest that the sequence presented in Scripture might ought to be considered as a valid assumption? Mainstream science tends to assume that there is no God, there can be no miracles, And everything functions today, essentially, the way it has always functioned. And then, from those assumptions, scientific exploration considers the observable evidence today and draws inferences. Origin science is a branch of historical science. And if Genesis 1 provides information about what historically happened, then scientists are foolish to leave that information out of consideration. But I digress. Back to the text. Let's move into day five, when God filled the waters of the seas with swimmers and the skies with flyers. Look at verses 20 to 23. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. For the first time, we read the phrase, Living creature, in verse 20. On day five, God begins to create life. Now, yes, on day three, God decreed that the earth should produce vegetation, plant life. But as far as the ancient people were concerned, plants and trees do not have the same kind of life that animals and insects do. On day two, God created the sky to separate the waters so that some water was above the sky. What we suggested was describing the clouds and the rest of the waters were left on the planet's surface. Then on day three, land appeared in the midst of the waters, and God named the waters seas. Now on day four, God fills the seas with living creatures. God refers again to the waters, instead of using the name seas here, and he fills the skies with flying creatures. The word translated birds is much broader and refers to flying creatures, which would probably include flying insects, bats, and other animals that fly with wings. Notice in verse 21 that Moses uses the word translated create again. This is the first time we've seen the word bara since verse 1. I suspect Moses reintroduces that special word at this particular point to emphasize that God alone is the one who caused life to exist. We should probably interpret this as straightforward creatio ex nihilo, so that God spoke and the living swimming creatures appeared in the seas fully grown and appropriately swimming. And the winged flying creatures appeared in the air, fully grown and appropriately flying around. But what he created in verse 21 is fascinating. Whereas God spoke of swarms of living creatures swimming in the waters, in verse 21, Moses refers to the great sea creatures, or as the New American Standard Bible has it, the great sea monsters. The King James translators wrongly refer to whales here. This particular Hebrew word, tanin, only appears 14 times in the Old Testament. Nine times, the word is translated as serpent or dragon. For example, the next time we see the word is three times in Exodus 7, describing how Aaron's staff and then the magician's staffs became serpents in the presence of Pharaoh. However, a more significant reference occurs in Isaiah 27.1, a section of Isaiah's prophetic oracles that focuses on God's future, final, universal judgment. In that day, Yahweh, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What, or who, is Leviathan. Famously, the Lord brings Leviathan to Job's attention at the end of the poetic book of Job. His elaborate description in that passage has puzzled students of Scripture who are attempting to identify it as part of the animal kingdom. Most commonly, it's either been identified as a crocodile or some kind of dinosaur. To be sure, crocodiles and water-dwelling reptilian creatures are included in the term used on the fifth day of creation, things that swarm in the waters. However, just as we have real dragons, such as the leafy sea dragons that swarm around Australia, or the land animal, the Komodo dragon, which provides some basis for the legendary mythological dragons that fly and breathe fire, so also Leviathan may have a dual reference to an intimidating sea creature and also to a symbol of supernatural evil. Intriguingly. Moses uses the word translated dragon in Isaiah 27.1 to describe what God created on the fifth day. And he's going to use the word translated serpent in Isaiah 27.1 when he gets to the snake in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.1. The snake in the garden is not a sea creature. It is specified as a beast of the field. But in Isaiah 27.1, the two words are used to refer to the same entity which suggests that Leviathan is a kind of composite creature, combining features of sea snakes and land snakes. And many students of Scripture, including myself, believe that Isaiah 27.1 prophesies the future judgment of Satan himself. Now, why do I bring all that in here today? In many other ancient cultures, accounts of creation, there's some kind of chaos monster that the gods have to defeat in battle, in order to succeed in creating the world. In some of those stories, the word Moses uses to describe the great sea creatures or the great sea monster seems to show up in those other languages, identifying these nasty, powerful villains. Moses may have chosen this particular word right here for this purpose, to describe the sea creatures that God made on the fifth day, to emphasize to the Israelites that whatever they might hear from their pagan neighbors, whether in Egypt or in Canaan, whatever fearful powers are presented as potential threats that come from the seas, the God of Israel created whatever reality is underneath it. And if their God created it, then it's under his authority and it was originally good. That's true of Satan and the serpent as well. So to clarify, on day five, God created sea creatures and flying creatures, various kinds of swimmers and various kinds of flyers. Moses chooses an unusual word to refer to the sea creatures that points his readers toward more threatening realities that they would have associated with evil powers. This would have perhaps reminded them that even these hostile powers in their world were originally created good by their God. And therefore, even in their post-fall state, They need not fear these hostile powers. Instead of naming these things, God blesses them, and his blessing comes in the form of direct commands. So he commands the swimmers to be fruitful and multiply and fill the seas, and he commands the flying creatures to multiply on the land. Though they'll be known for flying through the expanse of the sky, they will reproduce on land, whether in nests or caves or holes in the ground or even in their own bodies. God's blessing refers to His speech. He speaks, effectually decreeing that they'd have the ability to fulfill the commands He issues. We might assume that the command to be fruitful and fill the waters may be reflected also toward the flying creatures so that they should be fruitful and fill the sky as they multiply. Moreover, this implies that even though the waters are described as swarming with these sea creatures, God doesn't fill the bodies of water ...with creatures all at once. Certainly it implies that he didn't just create a few here and there either... ...but he intends that they'd reproduce over the course of time... ...with the goal of filling the waters across the planet. I'd say they've done a pretty good job. Day five concludes, as the others have... ...with a summary of the passage of another single day. Now for the sixth day, we need to break it into two sections. This is the climax of the creation account it's not the conclusion, but it's the climax. The first part of day six narrates God's creation of land animals. Look at verses 24 and 25. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. On day three, God had decreed that the ground would vegetate vegetation. He spoke and the land began producing plants and fruit trees. On day six, God decrees that the ground would bring forth living creatures. So again, God speaks and life happens but he uses the land he already created to mediate the formation of these living creatures. Land animals are essentially broken down into three categories here. Livestock, which refers to large animals, usually with four feet that people often domesticated. Cattle, horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, goats, and such. Creeping things refers to small animals. I usually think of insects here, but it would also include rodents, reptiles, amphibians, and other small animals that could be described as scuttling across the ground. Finally, beasts of the earth or earth beasts or land beasts becomes a catch-all for everything else. Generally, this would signify wild animals such as two-legged animals like kangaroos and gorillas, as well as animals like cats, dogs, giraffes, elephants, bears, deer, as well as larger animals now extinct. God decrees that the ground should bring forth all the varieties of land animals. This is a figure of speech, a metaphorical personification. The land itself is being pictured as though it were a person. And these animals were just off in another room and needed to be escorted out into the light. But verse 25 makes it clear that God made these animals, and he made the various kinds distinct. Note the emphasis on according to its kind. This phrase appears ten times in Genesis 1. And it's an important point for Moses that we recognize that God has defined distinctions within creation. This pushes against all forms of evolutionary theory. For the scientifically inclined, I encourage reading Dr. Todd Wood on the topic of baraminology, an English word created from two Hebrew words, bara, created, and min, kind, thus the study of created kinds. Verse 25 closes with God's assessment of land animals as good. And then we move into the true climax of the creation account, the creation of humanity, in verses 26 to 31. It's interesting to observe that God doesn't reserve a day all to itself for the creation of humanity. If the days of creation were merely some kind of literary framework rather than an actual sequence of real days, I'd expect the author to set apart a day for the creation of humanity to further emphasize humanity's supremacy over the rest of creation and perhaps humanity's distinction from the rest of living creatures. Instead, humanity's origin shares the same time frame with mere land animals. Humanity was created the same day as ants and antelopes, spiders and snakes, mammoths and monkeys. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. As this is the climax of the creation account, and we're running a little short on time here at the end of the day, we're going to revisit the creation of humanity next Sunday. I'll make some overview observations this morning, but we'll probably just whet your appetite for the more thorough treatment coming next week. As he did on the third day, God speaks more than once on the sixth day, but his speech is different here. Instead of him saying something should happen, he seems to be deliberating. Rather than saying something like, let the earth bring forth man, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We're going to draw out the full significance of the image and likeness language next week. In these verses, you'll see the word earth seven times, emphasizing the connection between humanity and the earth or the land. In chapter 2, we'll see that God does indeed use the dust of the earth in forming the first human being. Rather than referring to humanity as earthlings, a better title would be landlords, lords of the land called earth. For the moment, we need to see that God's creation of humanity in his image equips them for having dominion over the rest of the living creatures on the planet. Sea creatures, though fish are specified here, flying creatures, livestock, and every creeping thing. So as to stress the comprehensive nature of the authority being delegated here, God also says, let them have dominion over all the earth. Thus, the main point of image-bearing, as it's introduced here in Genesis, is that God created humans to imitate His lordship, His divine governance. Indeed, humanity has been created as God's vice-regents. As one writer summarizes simply, bearing God's image connotes the kind of rule and dominion that promotes the flourishing of the whole of creation. In other words, we could translate God's creative word in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so that they may have dominion. Thus, humanity's exercise of dominion is a result of their creation in God's image. More on that next week. In verse 27, Moses introduces three lines of poetry into the historical narrative. He uses the verb bara, create, three times for emphasis. As God had said, let us make man in our image, now Moses says, so God created man in his own image. We can recognize that we shouldn't drive the meaning of those two words, create and make, too far apart. The poetry is repetitive, but it introduces the important awareness of humanity created male and female. This means, as one commentator summarizes so capably, The singular man is created as a plurality, male and female. In a similar way, the one God created humanity through an expression of plurality. Let us make man in our image. Following this clue, the divine plurality of persons expressed in verse 26 can be seen as an anticipation of the human plurality of persons reflected in man and woman, Thus casting human personal relationships in the role of reflecting God's own personhood. Yes. Just as Elohim is the one true God who exists as a plurality, so humanity, Adam, as the image of Elohim, must exist as a kind of plurality. Now while Moses here specifies humanity's differentiation into two genders, male and female, we know that animals also typically exist in the same twofold gender differentiation. Genesis does not focus on that reality or draw our attention to it, but rather draws attention to humanity's sexual differentiation as unique and uniquely important. The plurality drawn attention to that reflects God's own plurality is sexual differentiation. While God himself is not sexually differentiated, God is not male and female, neither is God male or female. There is a unique plurality in him. While the swimmers and flyers were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and most of them will do so through sexual reproduction, and we assume that that blessing and command carries over to the animals on day six as well, though it's not stated, apparently the sexual distinction within humanity transcends merely... Reproductive functionality. And we see that very clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. The importance of this sexual gender distinction will show up more in chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to elaborate on more of that in future messages. As with the sea creatures and the flying creatures on day 5, in verse 28, God blesses humanity and extends commands to them in what is often called the creation mandate or the creation commission. The command for fruitfulness and multiplication is stated the same, but humanity is given further commands that flow out of God's blessing. His verbal decree, His blessing, will enable them to subdue the land and exercise dominion over all other living creatures. The word subdue requires some attention. This word appears elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the conquest of Canaan. God's use of such a strong term suggests that God anticipates some resistance to humanity. God hints that aspects of creation, while created good and ultimately very good, have the potential to go bad. In fact, we might even see a hint here of God anticipating the entrance of a certain serpent who will oppose humanity's enjoyment of life in God's created world. Nevertheless, at the bare minimum, the word indicates that humanity should expect some hard work as they seek to obey these commands and enjoy the blessing of God. Likewise, the word translated have dominion implies humanity's royal responsibility to rule the rest of creation on God's behalf and in God's way. Notice that every living thing that moves on the earth is set under the proper authority, the proper dominion of humanity. When the crafty serpent shows up in Genesis 3, Moses will describe it as one of the beasts of the field, uh, literally one of the living things from the field. Adam and Eve should have recognized the evil nature of that serpent based on what it said about God and should have expelled it from the garden, exercising their proper dominion over this creature, even if it was being controlled by a spiritual being later identified as Satan. God speaks once again to the humans he had created, indicating that he was giving the plant life he had caused the land to produce on day three to them and to the animals as their food supply. God is emphatic here. He concludes at the end of verse 30, to everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. He says this to the humans which might imply that they were given the responsibility to ensure that the animals stuck to this diet. Or at least the humans were responsible to cultivate the land and the growth of more and more trees and plants so that the animals would continue to have the food they needed. The ruling authority given to humanity is a ruling authority of service. Humanity's posture toward creation is to use its resources for their own benefits and channel those benefits to other living creatures. This posture also pulls humanity away from viewing creation as overly fragile, and certainly they are not encouraged to worship anything in creation. God delegates authority to humanity, making humanity stewards of the rest of creation. At the conclusion of the sixth day, God provides an overall assessment of everything he had made. Very good. As the sun set on the sixth day, everything in creation was as it should be. Everything was moving harmoniously. Nothing was out of place. No boundaries had yet been crossed. In three weeks, we'll return to the narrative and pick up the conclusion of creation week, the important seventh day. Truly, the narrative of creation is not finished until we take in the account of the seventh day. Then in the rest of chapter 2, we'll have Moses revisiting day six, zooming in on the creation of humanity and setting the stage for the continuing narrative of history. Next week, we'll return to this passage and consider the larger biblical significance of humanity being created in the image of God. Then the following week, we will consider what the Bible teaches about creation outside of Genesis. Try to imagine over the next couple of weeks that you didn't have Genesis 1 and 2, that you never read it before, and you didn't have access to it. What would you learn about creation from the rest of the Bible? We will find out in a few weeks. As we conclude our message this morning, however, we need to see the significance of the creation mandate. Ultimately, as we see the humanity created in the image of God, we recognize that something happens in Genesis 3 that changes the way humanity functions as God's image. Why was humanity commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Animals were commanded to do this as well, but humanity's command is distinct in that humanity will seek to obey these commands as God's image. The anticipation is that Adam and Eve would reflect God's glory and character in certain ways. Then they'd have the chi- they'd have children that would continue to reflect God's glory in certain ways. Thus ultimately Bearing fruit and multiplying has to do with filling this planet, not merely with more people, but filling this planet with the glory of God. As the prophet Habakkuk prophesied in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. But if humanity rebels against God, when humanity rebels against God, what becomes of this commission? What becomes of this great future? If the mirrors be cracked, what sort of reflection can be carried forth? This commission will, in due course, in the book of Genesis, be handed over to Israel. Can a nation reflect God to the world? Can a nation of human beings exercise godlike rule over the world? Can a nation ensure that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea? No. No, they cannot. What do we need? We need another Adam. We need a man from heaven. We need the light of the world, the man who has life in himself. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, as Paul says in Colossians 1.15. Sinful human beings must be remade, must be created anew, When we trust in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Colossians 3.10 that we have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, as individuals, that is what we all need. But Colossians also tells us how the new humanity bears fruit and multiplies. Now, in Colossians 1.6, Paul says that the gospel has come to you Just as in all the world, also, it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying. Just as it has been doing in you, also, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. It is the gospel message that carries forward the creation mandate. Said differently, the creation commission is fulfilled as we pursue obedience to the great commission. The gospel bears fruit and multiplies as God uses the preaching of his word to grant new life to dead sinners, to expand the new creation. And the gospel bears fruit and multiplies in you, believers, as God uses the preaching of his word to renew us, conforming us more and more into the image of the last Adam, fitting us all for the new earth that is to come. As God shines the light of the gospel into the dark hearts of sinners. He breathes new life into new hearts, grants sight to blind eyes so that we might see Jesus as the true image of God. And by that sight, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus, the last Adam, has created one new man, the church, who will one day in resurrected glory populate the new earth. Until he returns, the church's role, our role together in subduing and ruling the so-called dominion mandate is in seeking to overcome the influence of evil and brokenness in this world through the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is the weapons of our warfare that we utilize to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The last three days of God's creative work narrated for us in Genesis 1 focused on his creating light and life. And so it is today that God gives light and life to all those who trust in Jesus. John eight twelve says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow him, won't you? In John 12, 46, he said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Believe in him, won't you? The light of the world was temporarily snuffed out, dying on a cross for sinful people like you and me. But on the third day, though he had died, he arose alive forevermore. He offers the light of life that ushers us into the new creation where we can offer eternal worship to the one who created all things, the one who redeemed all things, and the one who is making all things new. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we take in... Your instruction to us about creation. We are moved to worship. If we see you at all rightly, if we don't get distracted or bogged down by all of the debates, we need to see you in charge of it all, ahead of it all. Whatever things we might have wrong about our understanding of origins and how it all happened, whatever goes beyond what you've chosen to reveal to us in scripture, Help us to have humility as we pursue these things together. A humility that constantly goes back to pointing to you and you and you alone as the source of it all and the power that produced it all. We pray that you would stir us all to take your word very seriously on these matters. To refuse to dismiss it and lay it aside or to reinterpret it so that it no longer has any validity. Give us wisdom as we pursue these things in conversation and in relationship with other people. Help us to be like you, gracious, patient, loving, merciful. Help us to take responsibility for what we see and what we hear and what we profess. And we pray most of all, Father, that you would stir us to worship. Stir us to worship. Not just when we gather together on Sunday mornings, but to worship in every realm of our responsibility, in every area of our life, every day of the week, alone and together with your people. You deserve it all. Help us to see you at work in our lives. You're not some distant creator who wound it up, kicked it off, and then walked away. You have entered into your creation. And you have changed it. And you have changed us. And we give you thanks for your great work of redemption. And we look forward to the consummation of it all in a new creation. Thank you for welcoming us into your new creation. That we can be citizens of the new creation now. And that we can begin to live out the values of the new creation even today. Do your great work by your creative spirit in us. To transform us into the image of your son. That's where it's all headed. That's where we are headed. Help us to keep the end in view along the way. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. We've got a few announcements.